0: sequel cast two and friends is part of the greenlit podcast network for more information go to greenlitpodcast.com now
1: the state says you're sane you paid your debt then lila Luma starts to persecute you
2: because of what happened to her sister
0: yes marion crane right after the credits roll there's always more to tell
2: especially when the video sales are doing really well from shock treatment to Police Academy
0: 6. This is SequelCast, Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is
1: SequelCast, And your host have asked that I informed you
0: that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and this week we're talking about Psycho 3. Came out in 1986, as the poster says, Norman Bates is back to normal, but mother's off her rocker again. That's very, very cheesy. Uh, it also says the most shocking of them all, which I think every horror movie in the 80s used as a tagline. Uh, with me is Thrasher.
2: And I've just fixed the ice machine. And Alex. Hey, wash the guitar, that's my bread and butter.
0: Right. So So we should
2: talk a a, a little bit more about that poster, because it's just like Norman Bates pulling a mug, dangling a hotel room key. That looks looks like the poster for the parody of this movie that would have come out at the time, possibly done by the Zucker Brothers.
0: It's funny you mention that, because other than Psycho 3, uh, Perkins' only directorial credit is a film called Lucky Stiff, that's yeah. a bit of a spoof uh, written by Pat Proft, who did work on the original um, Airplane, and, and later on, Pat Proft would direct probably one of the better uh, late-period Leslie Nielsen films, Ron Flea Accused. Huh.
1: Awesome. Yeah, there was um I remember the video store I like actually picked this up and looked at it. I'm like, "Oh, wait, this actually is a psycho movie." Oh shit. Cuz like it just looks like a, such a it just looks like a, such such another stereotypical like, you know, goofy slasher sequel, you know? Like even the the key looks like a knife, you know what I mean? <laughs> and just a hammy expression, you know, like it basically the cover just announces that like we're not going to try and be like high end anymore. We're just going to be like a gooey slasher.
0: Well, and, and um, apparently Perkins would be very upset. He was very angry that all the reviews called Psycho 3 as camp. Oh, yeah. Uh, even though it sort of is. I mean, it's like you said, it's not a spoof. But on the other hand, the, the, the tone is, is different from Psycho 2. And I think that what makes it interesting. I think in some ways it's, it's, it's better than Psycho 2, but we'll, we'll get into it. Um, Thrasher, when's the first time you watched uh, this film? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, when I started watching it uh, last night, I assumed that was the first time I've seen it, but after uh, after the intro, after uh, Dwayne Duke shows up at the motel, I remembered everything in the film, so I must have seen it before. Uh, going back through my memory, it had to have been like late at night on cable, possibly on Monster Vision in the 90s.
0: Was Monster Vision, was that USA or AMC?
2: Oh no, that was TNT, where characters are welcome, uh, hosted by Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see. Okay,
0: it's that version of that show. And Alex, what about you?
1: Um. So yeah, like I was saying on the last couple episodes, these were pretty uh, uh, important films growing up. So shortly after seeing Psycho two, we rented Psycho three from the uh, from the VHS rental place inside the Stop and Shop supermarket. Um. Yeah. So uh, we watched this, and you know, had a had a great time with it because. When you're at that age, like, when we're watching it, I remember being like, this is better than the first one. Like, there's so much more blood and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you're a little gore hound, even at age whatever. Um, and then I haven't seen it in, in forever. And then I was at Rite Aid, and I, I found, like, a five-in-one movie pack. I had, like, two, three, four in, like, Bates Motel. And it was, like, four bucks. So I figured, why not? And um, then then rewatching, I was like, this is a little grimy, but, I mean, it holds up. It's It's a lot of fun to watch. And it's cool to watch Perkins direct. Um, and then recently, I think in preparation for the episode, I just got the, the Shout Factory uh, Blu-ray, which was, uh, it looks great and does the movie uh, some justice with some fun bonus features and stuff like that.
0: Do they have any vintage footage of Perkins on there? or
1: No, unfortunately they don't. I mean... It's a, it's more new stuff. Um, you get some fun trailers, though, and it's funny because the TV trailer goes like, coming soon, Psycho 3! Like, it... It's not like as menacing or anything. It just sounds kind of, of like
0: a trifle? Well, this is amusing. The director of photography Bruce Surtees, that would later do another um, Hitchcock-related uh, film to DP, which is *The Birds* two *Land's End*. Ah. Oh. Which was a made-for-TV uh, sequel. Um. And but he also did, you know, as the DP for Beverly Hills Cop, which was a big hit. And nice. the Corey the Corey Feldman Corey Haim. Uh, legendary picture, License to Drive. I also did Outlaw Josie Wells. That's a good... Uh, oh, that's a it. great book, yeah. Did, did some dirty. The first Dirty Harry. Holy shit. Neat. Um, anyhow, yeah, Psycho 3. I saw it I think when I rented it, uh, you know, shortly after moving to Portland and setting up a Netflix account. For some reason, I was on a psycho kick, so rented all those sequels and watched them uh, over a week or two. And uh, this one... It certainly grabs your attention from from the opening uh, line, or I think someone says there is no God or something along those lines, and yep. someone's screaming.
2: Yeah, we see that classic Universal Pictures logo. Uh-huh. We just see we see darkness, and then we just hear a woman scream, "There is no God!" and then Psycho three,
0: right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, okay, that got my attention, but where do you go from there? And, um. Jeff Fahey, I kept giggling when he was on the screen, because I can't not think of him as the lead in Lawnmower Man. My <laughs> wife
2: said the exact same thing. Is it? Yeah.
0: And I mean, he, he's, he's a good looking guy and, and stuff. And he was actually a good it's a, a Lawnmower Man we'd love to cover in the show someday, because it does have a sequel. But mm. in this, you know, he, he's, um, he's kind of like a dirtbag musician dude but he's not as much of quite as much of an asshole as dennis franz in psycho 2 he's an asshole in a different way he's more sneaky about it i guess yeah well,
2: they, they, they let they let his his asshole assholishness build but so like we begin that so we find out who was screaming there is no god it's a uh it's a young nun named marine Coyle. which it now just occurs oh yeah marine coil mortal coil she's on top oh, of a mission the air, oh yeah. yeah she's on top of a mission bell tower and one thing I noticed that this bell tower they keep cutting to these vertical shots of the stairs and the bell tower and it it's just keeps hitting with these vertigo references. Yeah, the Vertigo references
1: and like also like you said, it's a very striking way to start the film. And also, it reminds me of Do you remember that scene in Rosemary's Baby where Rosemary's having that nightmare where like someone in the seminary school like fell out of a window? Oh yeah. And they're bricking it up. It reminded me of that. And also, I also got kind of like a weird black narcissist vibe from this mm. as well. Like, so a lot of the Catholic baggage was law totally lost on me when I was a kid. Um mm. And it's a really interesting way to start the film, and it, 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 it you know, it's a recurring theme throughout with uh, with Maureen's character. But um, it's funny though, because when uh, with Jeff Fahey coming in, it's funny because at first he comes off as you know a, a total fucking asshole because he basically tries to rape her. Yep. And I'm always kind of shocked by how quickly she forgives him. I mean, I guess she's. A, Recently defected nuns. So I guess that's kind of their business, but. but I mean, consider yeah.
0: when this was made. This was made in the mid '80s. You still had rape as a, a pretty standard thing in horror films, and oh, it yeah. wasn't. Okay. It was never really, well, rarely dealt with seriously. Right.
2: Um, I I never get the sense that she forgives him. She just walks yeah. away. You know, she like with the moment. Like I, she she leaves the you know she leaves the car and just gets into the rain because she'd rather be out there than in the car with him. Um. But yeah, after her attempted suicide, which leads to the accidental death of one of the other nuns, uh, who who brutally like falls backwards, wang's into the mission bell, and then plummets four <laughs> stories to the bottom of the like. I I was not that's that's one hell of an opening. I was not expecting that level of brutality, even accidentally, uh, so early. But um. Yeah, but, uh, but you know, Dwayne ends up pulling into the Bates Motel, sees a help wanted sign, and gets a job as an assistant to Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and, and there's, that, that, oh, go
2: ahead. Uh, there's that great line where he's like, you know, I'm going to be
1: straight with you, Normie, I'm just going to get enough bread to get my brakes fixed. He's like, I ain't going to stay long, and he goes, oh, that's okay, no one does. Mm. <laughs> and they're going to yeah. see that, like. Perkins is leaning into the like, okay, we're just gonna do a, a down and dirty kind of uh, slasher film now. Like we're, we're right. through trying to be high right.
0: And and I appreciate at least with these, I guess it's true of the the four main psycho films we'll be talking about as we go through the series. Each one has a slightly different tone to it, right? I mean, it, oh, they're 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 horror movies, I guess, but um, it, and also the ways they use limited locations. The diner is in this film again. Of course, you have the house you have the uh the different um motel rooms and stuff you could do any of these psycho movies as a stage play oh yeah and they would work perfectly fine i think you wouldn't i don't think you'd have to change a whole lot and because cuz they're intimate character dramas in a way that happen to deal have, have people getting bumped off
1: And once again, we have a lot of the cast is back. And like the second one, everyone's totally rooting for Norman. Everyone's like, you know, give (laughs) the guy a break. He paid his debt to society. What what does the chef from the diner say? He's like, he's like 20 years in the nutcase will do well. You know, it was punishment enough for anybody, you know. And then you have the, the, the journalist nosing around. But, you know, what's interesting is that the diner is so much more like sinister, feeling like it's very dark and shadowy and and foggy almost it almost seems like like after um uh what's her face uh what's her last name spool marie spool left it's kind of like cast like a bit of like a dark shadow over it you know because in the second one you know it's a bustling little hub of the community and everyone's in there in this movie it's just right. you know it just kind of looks like a grimy little hellhole
0: even the the motel looks a bit Shittier, and it looked pretty shitty in Psycho 2, But like, yeah. there's a greater emphasis on on color and the lighting in this, which I appreciated. Um, the female lead, D- diana's played by Diana Scarder, the Maureen, uh, the nun that escapes. Um, she was, you know, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1980 for Inside Moves, which okay. is an old Richard Donner film. Uh, but uh, apart from that, you know, people would have known her in the kind of uh, gay and camp circles. For Mommy Dearest playing the part of Christina Crawford.
2: Oh, That's yes. Right. No more wire hangers. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, even today, you watch RuPaul's
0: Drag Race and they make a wire hangers reference practically every episode, and the younger oh, um, yeah. drag queens doing the show don't understand it always, <laughs> which is funny. But um, learn your history, kids. But yeah. Like but, Harlan
2: Ellison said.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. I've, I've told that story too many times drink um,
1: your pepsi and don't use those damn hangers <laughs> so much pepsi in this film <laughs> so much
0: pepsi yeah uh but anthony perkins i mean i, I did some research of all newspaper articles uh i don't have one in front of me right now of course because i'm not that prepared but he really wanted to direct for a long time he knew what every lens did and he knew like he was really got into the technical side of it when that's not always the case with directors especially first-time directors yeah, where I you guess kind like of trust the DP more. I mean, it's always a collaboration, right? Right. There's not God, but you're still in charge of getting the shoot done on time and under budget, preferably.
1: Yeah, like I guess when Jeff Fahey read um the the, the first thing they read for is like when he's kind of interviewing for the job at the at the hotel. And mm-hmm. he said that like Anthony Perkins went from Perkins to Bates, like, boom. <laughs> like okay, let's read for the scene. Bam! I'm Anthony. I'm 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 Norman Bates now, and he was really intimidated. He's like, I this guy's too good, and like the fact that he's directing too on top of this is like you know holy moly, um. But I guess you know they they hit it off and it worked out. But um, he said he was just a real consummate pro, and not too much of a you know he didn't bust your chops much. And um, yeah, like you said, knew what he wanted, knew what he was doing technically, and um, and Cat uh, Shay as well. She. So the character who gets iced on the toilet—I don't want to jump around continuity-wise too much it's actually director actress uh, Kat Shea, who did um, *Carrie: The Rage* 2.
0: Oh, yeah. sure, yeah, yeah, she's something user, of a yeah.
1: yeah, something of a screen queen. She does a lot of trailers from Hell mm-hmm. commentaries on the Joe Dante YouTube channel. Sure, sure. So it was really cool, actually. Uh, that's a fun little bit of trivia that I enjoyed. And she also said nothing but glowing things about, or mostly glowing things about Perkins's uh, production, uh, direction, and uh, performance.
0: I sure it sounded like you were gonna say something.
2: Well just, just that it, it's I find it amazing to see that Anthony Perkins only directed two things and that this was the yeah. second. This was I found this to be not only very competently directed, but it had some stylistic flares. Mm-hmm. Like I I can only assume the reason he never directed anything else was either he didn't want to or no one was giving him offers for some some god awful reason. And I mean, like a lot he, of time
0: stuff just falls through because of financing. I mean it's not always yeah. Well, that's true,
2: that. but, but also just like his eye for detail. There's a handful of moments. In, well, like I said, like in in the bell tower when they when they when they pay homage to uh, to Vertigo, uh, there there is a re there's there's an homage to a shot from the first Psycho that comes later in this film to the point where it looks like they even used the old special effect to do it rather than mm-hmm. rather than use any kind of modern process, and it really shows. But I I appreciate that touch.
0: Yeah, yeah, I wonder. Um, um, one,
2: I'm oh, sorry, Matt. We we're gonna say.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say. I did not speaking of the original Psycho. Um, Psycho two, you know, kind of uh, opened with a a recap of the last time on Psycho because you didn't really have home video as a big thing back then. But with Psycho three, you have um, early on when Norman Bates uh, sees Maureen, it kind of like flash cuts to brief things of the shower scene in black and white. And I, I really wish they didn't do that because every time I see that, I'm like, oh, I should watch the original Psycho again. How is this going to hold up? Like, stop comparing yourself to, to Hitchcock because you're going to lose every time.
2: Well, see, I, I like that because, yes, Did it you? does start yeah. with the actual sour, shower scene. Shower, However, yeah. as the flashback persists, they very subtly transition to it being a recreation of the shower scene, but with Marine coil. And it the, the transition mm-hmm. is so subtle, you don't realize they've made that transition until the very, very end when you realize that's Marine Coyle's face on the bathroom tile. Yeah,
1: I like the 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 flashback felt a little weird at first, but the Marine stuff I thought was interesting. It almost would have, <clears throat> I feel like it almost would have worked a little bit better if they took like less, uh like iconic footage from the first one, like. Maybe if you just had a scene with like Norman like grabbing a knife or something from the first film, hmm. you know, just that kind of like flashback of like, oh, the, the the beast within, you know what I mean? Type thing. Um, and it's funny though, I know I reference this as being like, uh, you know, just kind of saying all in on being a thrasher. Uh, I mean, not a thrasher, a slasher. Um, you <laughs> know what you meant, I know, right? Slasher. <laughs> um, but uh, like once again, though, this is, again, a film about a person who wants to be good still. Like, you can tell they kind of broke yes, bad yeah. in part two. But there's a lot of moments where he's, a lot of this movie is, uh, you know, is Norman struggling with his psychosis. And I also find a lot of interesting things is that you can tell there's these moments when the mother side breaks and the Norman side's, you know, coming through. Like, you know, when, when Duke gets it, that's Norman. You know what I mean? When, yeah. you know, a uh, chick on toilet gets it. That's mother.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and it's ironic, too, yeah. is that, like, the, 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 when he sees, um, Marine, you think that's going to trigger, you know, proverbial, you know, murder, but it actually, he ends up kind of saving a life.
0: Well, I found that seemed very moving. It, yeah. Um, it's not what I was expecting. I mean so in the second movie when they redid the shower scene you see full frontal nudity which is something you didn't see in the original right. psycho they, they didn't they uh, wouldn't even let hitchcock show an ass crack as um janet lee is bending over the the bathtub because that was too racy but in this one like it's such a clever twisting of of that what would, would have then become a cliche parody and everything from like bugs bunny to i don't know probably the garfield comic or something yeah and And just to see that he he saves her from dying after a suicide attempt and all the blood and it's uh, it it really gets you on Norman's side. I mean, all of these sequels do a good job of that, even though we've seen him kill uh, all these people. And I don't think the people he kills deserve it. But on the other hand, it just makes you feel conflicted in a way a lot of, say, I don't know, like Friday the 13th doesn't.
2: Well, I mean, it, it goes beyond even that because they even slavishly recreate the setups for the original sh- shower scene. Norman yes. is peeping at her through a wall. You know, she gets in there. No- Norman, you know, get, gets in. He 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 gets into his full mother gear, and and it and it is such a shock when he pulls back the curtain, and then we see she's not taking a shower. She slit her wrists, and she's yeah. in there with the hot water mingling with the blood. And so you know, it snaps Norman out of it. He saves her. But what's so fascinating is that that Maureen, who the movie begins with her having a, 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 a just a, an absolute crushing crisis of faith, when she looks up and sees this womanly figure, her in her mind it's the Virgin Mary. And not so not only does he save her life, he mm. resolves her crisis of faith. And for the rest of the movie, she you know she's always talking about yes, the Virgin the Virgin Mary came to me. She gave me a second chance.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's um so you mentioned alex some of the cast comes back i recognize the sheriff is there anyone else
1: the sheriff the uh the chef from the diner ah, Sure. okay um maybe that's it um i i i do love um uh hugh gillen though as uh sheriff sheriff john john hunt um
0: Do You like the ice cube scene? That seems to be one a lot of oh, yeah, interviews yeah, talked about. Thing. Why don't you tell us about what you thought about that?
1: That was great. Um, and that was like a one. Yeah, I, I, I think out of all the scenes in the film, that one stuck out the most because it feels like such a Hitchcock scene. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, you see him grab for him, and there he's in the he's in the clear, so to speak. You know, and well, then I you think, know he grabs
2: again. We we've neglected to mention something is that the woman who died on the toilet um norman has stashed her body in the bottom of the ice yeah
0: right and so the audience knows it the sheriff doesn't and i mean that's the thing hitchcock did in a lot of film almost all his films but probably most notably rope where it's what's under that table uh
1: and the best part too is that um you know like as he's uh you know chewing on the ice cubes he's chewing out all the people who who wrongfully who he thinks wrongfully (laughs) He's like, now I'm not gonna stand for this again. You're slating this man's name. You know, and then you see him grab this like grimily bloody freaking ice cube. Yeah. And it she shows that it's a close-up of it going into his mouth, and you think that like the iron and the blood taste would rub off and he'd you know turn around and be like, What the hell? But no, he just, you know, shuts the door and then saunters off and you're like, Oh my goodness, like holy shit. Uh, what a good scene. And so Hitchcocky and and um, Like, I think with Richard Franklin in the first one, and now, obviously, Anthony Perkins, I think being more of a student of Hitchcock, coming, is that they know when to ape the master and when to do their own thing. Um, And and it pays off wonderfully, especially with uh, the icebox scene. It was some of the moody lighting towards the end of the film.
0: Oh, I I was thinking of some of the moody lighting, uh, especially towards the end of the film, where he goes full Norman, so to speak. Do you think? are you too, Thrasher? Do either of you think he, um, as a director, Anthony Perkins was influenced by Italian horror,
2: Giallo? Films? I am glad you mentioned that because I, I wanted to bring up two big points about, about the Giallo influence on this film. Sure. That I think is very apparent. One, it is like with with the music, there are these occasional like synth stings that show up wow. at different tense moments and during certain certain murders that is right out of the Giallos. But the other thing is, there's a scene where Dwayne Duke has, uh, has hooked up with a woman and brought her back to the room he's staying in in the hotel. A room that looks like an evidence dungeon. We're like, right. everything is just papered over with, like, nude pictorials. But the nude pictorials have all been cut up and taped back together. Like, oh, yeah. like he's trying to make his perfect woman. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, and I like... think he's the real sociopath here. <laughs> Oh yeah. And she and she's doing like this sort of strip tease on his bed, and there's this strange shifting violet light over everything, which you know, once again seems right out of the giallos. And then we cut we cut to uh we cut to Dwayne Duke, uh, Jeff Fahey, and like Turns out that that light—it's not just—it's not just like a, a, an artistic flair. He's got like purple gels over two bedside lamps, and he's like playing Dalek with them, and like casting the purple light over her. And he's completely naked, mm. and it just looks so unsavory. It looks like something a sex maniac and a Giallo would do right before he <laughs> kills somebody.
1: Oh yeah, like I felt like I was watching uh, like an Argento film. And then, especially when she gets uh dispatched in the phone with like stepping on the shards of broken glass like that feels like that level of cruelty you get in like a later Bava movie or an argento flip film you know it's not mm-hmm. bad enough to you know you know hack a poor woman to death, but like to show her
2: stepping on shards of glass while it's happening it's just so like yeah, you know yeah, and, uh, and, Norman, uncomfortable. and Norman is responsible for that death he's in full mother mode at at, at the time, and of course she 's screaming her head off, and I can only assume. Dwayne must know that that murder happened, but he also just must not care.
1: Yeah, because maybe he's getting his little blackmail scheme in the in the works. Or maybe oh, true, he's just yeah. such an asshole. He just doesn't give a shit. You know, he's like, is she getting murdered? Pff, whatever. You know, just another skirt, you know, because he's a pretty huge dick after they uh, after they get
2: down and dirty. Yeah. And, and that's and that's actually a great tense scene where, where he invites he invites Norman into his room. And starts explaining to Norman, you know, I, I know what you're, I know what you're up to, and he starts, you know, you, you're going to give me money so I can leave and start my rock career. And Norman's like, we don't have that much money. We're not doing that well as a hotel. And he's like, oh, that's okay. You got property. You can sell it. Uh, mm-hmm. And if they eventually come to blows, and there's a really, there's a nice. I love a good sloppy fight scene, and that's what mm-hmm. they get because when two, when two people go at it. It's not an it's not elaborate martial arts choreography. It's grabbing and punching until they both fall over and start wrecking furniture. Right. And that's exactly and then, what we get. Yeah, and the guitar just... It, I
1: laughed out loud in, like, the best possible way. I thought it was just a gr- uh, great, sloppy... You know what I mean? Like you said, it's a down-and-dirty, sloppy kind of fight. And I couldn't help but think of, like, John Belushi in Animal House, you know,
2: a little bit. But, but also, you like, know, the there's... irony of it... Because the whole reason this happened is that the police... Uh, after the the after the woman goes missing, you know the police search Norman's place, and of course they don't find anything. So his mummified mother, the second mother from the second movie, is not there. Um, he goes, she it uh, she's been stolen by Dwayne and is propped up in front of the television in Wayne's hotel room and is watching Bugs Bunny or not Bugs Bunny uh, uh Woody Woodpecker cartoons. And so the Woody Woodpecker laugh plays over all this violence in this like at first it's a little comical, but then it just becomes darker and more sinister as it goes on. Uh, And then I also love that because he, he takes, he takes the body, puts them in, puts them in Dwayne's car and he's going to, to drive the car into the swamp. Turns out Dwayne's not entirely dead. Yep. (laughs) And just the brutality of Norman, not his, not in the mental mode of his mother, but as himself has like, literally has his boot over Dwayne's neck and is like, forcing him into the area under the passenger seat as the car sinks into the swamp and it's and they really do linger on the uh, under the water in the marsh. Like when, when Norman finally manages to get out of the car and he sees all those bicycles and garbage other people have thrown in there. then he stumbles across another body that's still down there. Yeah,
1: and like um like I was saying too like this is a moment you can tell that's not psycho Norman. This is this is just Brother Norman. And you can tell that he's not very comfortable or good at this type of business like he's struggling he's very he's got a very horrified expression the whole time you know he's kind of uh, fumbling around a little bit and um kind of trying to you know just wing it and um then when we go underwater uh, it reminded me a lot i felt like this was a reference to that beautifully haunting scene and uh the night of the hunter mm. where you kind of oh, have definitely. like this underwater you know uh scene where you see shelly winter's body like it felt very like kind of like surreal um in a a very haunting way i I thought that was really great because we do linger on it enough to kind of get a feel for the underwater stuff and i think it works wonderfully
0: so i have been rereading some of the novels to prep for this and are you curious to see what the third novel was about it was written in 1990 a little bit after this film yes yeah so it's called psycho house it's the third and last novel robert block wrote um I, you get the impression that, not that he doesn't like Psycho, but he does one of these when he needs good money because it's just a recognizable name. Uh, and uh, it takes place, you know, uh, the Norman Bates house has been changed into a tourist attraction and teenagers go to sneak in there to have sex and do drugs and that stuff. And all of a sudden the teenagers are, one of the teenagers is killed. And it's more of like a procedural uh, mystery of who done it. And it has almost nothing to do with Psycho at all. So, um, mm. although there is a funny scene in the very beginning when the teens are trying to sneak up and they an uh, animatronic Norman Bates pops out and says, like, oh, would you like a room key? And huh. I get scared by that. So, I mean, Robert Block really went outside the, the norm for his Psycho book sequels, which I can appreciate. Because it could have been very... Yeah, outside the Norman. Yeah, good. Good one. Uh so with um I'm just thinking about Psycho three overall, the big elephant in the room with the plot is that it tries to retcon stuff from Psycho 2.
2: Well, it's it's one of those it's it's sort of another point of view sort of thing. So we 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 come so you know the big revelation in Psycho 2 at the end is we find out that uh Mrs Bates wasn't Norman's biological mother Norman's biological mother was uh was Mrs Bates sister uh Emma Emma Spool who had Norman out of out of wedlock as like the product of an affair well in this movie we find out no that's not the case Emma Spool was absolutely... Not only did she kill her own, like, kill the person she was having an affair with, she was absolutely crazy. Norman was Mrs. Bates' biological son, but Emma Spool, who, uh, who was having an affair with Mr. Bates... Had a psychotic break and thought, oh, Norman is my child. They stole him from me and and kidnapped him when he was an infant. And there was a whole big legal brouhaha. So it's it's another weird level of complication thrown over things. But it just makes his it just makes his family environment seem all that much more toxic. Oh, entirely. And I think um, I I guess like I I like the, the development
1: um, but I just think the way it's delivered is like a little Scooby-Dooey, like as she's like yes. running around the
2: house. She's like, "Who was it actually your mother. You know, it's like, uh, OK, well, you it know, kind of like we've barely talked about Roberta Maxwell as Tracy Venable. Oh, yeah, let's do it but yeah she so she she's a reporter and she she's introduced she runs she's asking people at the diner about about norman in the, in the history there and we come and then norman shows up she starts talking to him and we come to find out that she is writing she's writing a big article for for a magazine about the about the insanity defense uh in the legal system uh, and it's and it's a really neat angle but as she's trying to uh kind of pump Norman for information since he has like firsthand experience. She gets pulled more into the local history and she's the one who, who by looking through old papers and whatnot, does discover the whole thing about, about the missing Mrs. Spool kidnapping Norman as an infant.
1: Yeah, it's a good little B story and I like her performance and she's had an interesting career. Um, uh, she's in the, the change which is such a terrific film. Um, Broke back, Philadelphia, uh, Dead Man Walking, um, kind of a muckrakey uh, death penalty movie, which I have a soft spot for, I guess. Um, yeah, interesting career. And I, I like the B story of her kind of sleuthing around as kind of like a, you know, kind of like an amateur P.I. Um, yeah, it was just a little bit funny at the ending, though, and she's kind of like rattling
2: off all this stuff, you know. Well, the other thing I like about her, about Tracy Venable, is she has a lot of information, a lot of interactions with uh, with Dwayne Duke because they meet They meet at a bar, a bar that has a jukebox that plays that plays acoustic synth wave. Uh, <laughs> amazingly enough. Another thing right out of the giallos. Uh, and and, you know, he he's she's he's she's given him money for information about Norman. And she's the only woman in this movie that has absolutely no patience for Dwayne's bullshit.
0: Neat. I um, yeah no. I think she does a good job having a reporter as a big character is is smart because it's kind of a natural way they can to kind of create a foil for um, Norman, kind of picking at his brain with those questions. Um, I was just uh, looking over my my pre search and um, I found this pretty interesting. The original screenplay for Psycho Three by Charles Edward Pogue had Dwayne as the killer. With the Norman obsession.
2: I could you know, I could totally see that and I all and I started to even suspect that at one point. Do you think that would have worked, Alex? Alex, are you cut off? Alex. Good lord, I think we lost Alex. Yeah. Hello? No.
0: Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay, yeah. Now. I
1: just had to plug it in and plug it back up. Um, no, I was thinking, though, about that, too. And I was like, you know, Norman. at this point, when he's, you know, fighting with him and killing him, or almost killing him, he could totally just throw Johnny Radical under the bus and just say he was doing all these killings. I mean, his hope, his room is basically like a freaking mausoleum of, of you know, Dahmer-esque horrors. So, like, I, I don't think it would be that hard of a sell, you know, to just have, you know... This drifter kid out of nowhere turned out to be the killer. Um,
0: but then yeah. it's against audience expectations that Norman Bates has to be the killer every time, which is right. frankly less interesting.
1: Yeah, and I, um, I do love that the when <laughs> because basically just commits that like you know, Norman's you know running around doing his thing, and um, the sheriff is like, Ah, that sure you made me made, made a damn fool out of me.
2: <laughs> oh yeah yeah i guess we, i guess we should talk about the end because uh because maureen you know does you know at one point she's under the care of a psychiatrist who's also a priest in the catholic church but she leaves she leaves him to go to go back to norman because she kind of there's actually a really tender scene actually uh between norman and maureen where like they're in maureen's room at the hotel and they start making out and and you know she she wants to have sex, but Norman's uncomfortable. But they just decide, well, we'll just lie here in each other's arms. It's actually really touching. It's one of the m- most human moments that Norman ever gets. Um, but anyway, she goes she goes back to uh, Norman Bates, and at this point, Norman is under a lot of stress, and she keeps trying to get upstairs into the room where where the mummified body of the mother is. And this is when we get that slavish recreation of one of the deaths in the first film, because. Uh, in an echo of the nun trying to stop her from jumping, and she accidentally knocks the nun back, she tries to gr- she puts her her hand on Norman's arm. Norman panics, pushes her back, and she falls down the stairs just like in the original film, where there's that sort of compositing, there's that difference between her in wow. the foreground and the shifting background. Wow. She falls back, and ironically, she dies because her head falls back on the arrow of a cupid statue.
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh it's even more surreal
2: than Ma- Martin Balsam falling well, I think down. I think it's in, I think it's in part because one it's in full color and that can really affect the like the same special yeah. effect in black and white versus color can look completely different but also I really do th- I think by this point that kind of in-camera compositing probably no one was doing that in any no, level yeah. of filmmaking and they tried to reproduce it and so since no one really has that old expertise it looks a little bit wonky Uh yeah But, you know, then then uh, then Tracy Venable shows up to try to interview Norman, finds uh, finds Maureen's body laid out on the couch, surrounded by all the candles. It's super creepy. Uh, She goes up, finds Norman having an argument with the corpse mother. And this is actually a a powerful moment for Norman is you think Norman's going to stab Tracy, but instead he stabs his mother's corpse and decapitates. Now I have the guts, mother. Now I have the guts. Yeah. Uh, All that uh, inexpensive sawdust just leaking out. And then we cut to Norman being carried away by the police. And yeah, the sheriff's like, I believed in you. I vouched for you. Made me look like a (laughs) damn fool. Uh, And so he's he's in the car. They're not going to let you out this time, Norman. You're going to be put away forever. And he's like, that's okay, because I'll be free. And like you finally, oh, yeah, Norman is now free of his mother. And he's so happy as he's driven away. And this is another thing, like, it's it's an old-fashioned compositing. It's clearly a real project, projection of a moving highway behind him. And he's like, and he's just got that happy smile. I'm free, I'm free. And then the smile goes sinister, just like in the end of the original film. And he reaches into his sleeve and pulls out the mummy's hand. So, and of I, course, you know, is it the end, question mark?
1: <laughs> and you think it's going to be like a fly or something, right? You know, <laughs> like this time around. And instead of, you know you have the, and, and Psycho, the first Psycho, you've got Norman as mother, not swatting a fly on, on his or her hand. Um, and instead of this one, you have Norman holding her literal hand. Um, and, and, then, and then like
2: all the color outside the car drains away and it just becomes black. It's this wonderfully surreal touch. Oh, definitely. But, but I can see, I can understand why a critic at the time might see what is meant to be surreal and assumes that it's camp. Yeah, totally. And the, But
1: the thing with Maureen flying down the stairs is that it almost also feels like, since it's from Norman's point of view, I think losing her is, I mean, the technique's obviously a homage to the original, but I think it's like losing her is almost kind of like this, representing the psychological break between... You know, maybe maybe Maureen's love could have you know had a uh, maybe normalizing effect on Norman or Norman in some way. You know what I mean? Almost like the relationship with Meg Tilly in the second one, and then when she goes down the stairs, which is probably something he associates with death. Um, you know, it so quickly is kind of uh, this this trigger for him. And then when he, you know, uh, you know, exhibits her body, it's like you have a return to this very like ritualistic Catholic imagery of all the candles and everything and she's almost, you know, laid to rest like the like the Virgin Mother or something. It's it's very very evocative and very creepy in this like ceremonial way. Um and it's uh it's really well done though. It looks really it's a very striking very striking imagery and the lighting's uh, very flattering. And that kind of goes into this like there's like this CPSH sagebrush look throughout the film. It's very dusty and and desolate too Cool um, oh, I mean, I
0: think we, so, oh yeah
2: there, there is something I do want to talk about there there's just this lovely bit of detail that's in the that's in, very early on in the film because our introduction to Norman is when he's performing taxidermy and we see how he gathers his birds by poisoning his bird feeder. but we get these wonderful desolate shots of of uh, the the Bates house. And we, there's this dusty, torn-up old paperback lying in the dust. It's uh, The Belly of the Beast, which is a, a book of letters that uh, Jack Abbott wrote to Norman Mailer. Uh, and what's it's, and this is just such a wonderful bit of continuity and eye for detail. Um, in Psycho 2, Mary was reading a new paperback copy of that book when she stayed at the Bates' house.
1: Yep. And we also see the kids... Um... Uh, handprints on the basement window, too. Yes.
2: Which is another uh, bit of continuity, it's, which I thought was great. It's, it's, it's that sort of appreciation of the series' history that I, I'm not sure I can think of any other horror series that has even bothered to do that. On Apocrypals, we talk about the parts of the Bible that a lot of people skip over. Like the wizard battles. The angel jacuzzis. A goat full of sins. 500 drunk elephants. And a man named Porky Party. And yes, that's all really in there. All this and more on Apocrypals every other week on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hello everyone, we're superhero stuff you should know. And if you think you know about superheroes and comic books, think again. We got romance, we got action, romance. we got comedy. We got everything you need, man. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know for all your superhero needs. Uh, I I don't know about this romance. What part are you talking about? We've got all kinds of sketches and then deep dives on top of that. Come on down to Superhero Stuff You Should Know. All right, so come on down to... Wait, why did I say come on down? To Superhero Stuff You Should Know. Part of the Greenlit Podcast
0: Network. There was a a vintage documentary I found on YouTube um, and they really go into the... A really good bit of it is Anthony Perkins gives praise to production designers like the uh, least, most overlooked, hardest job uh, when doing a film. And he, he they show like all these blueprints of making things match the original house and the original rooms exactly as they were building the new sets for Psycho 2. And um, I mean, it just goes to show, although Psycho 3 is his first gig, uh, in a sequel of that Anthony Perkins took this very seriously. and I And this one I think, it, well, it did. It got, like, a bad rap at the time. It um, it didn't make Psycho 2 money, which is kind of an unfair comparison because it was so right. many years between Psycho 1 and 2. And, um, yeah, it's, I think overall, I, I like this movie in some ways better than the second. In other ways, I don't. But I, I, I appreciate the difference in tone. Uh, I would give this a sequel, yes. Thrasher. Um,
2: I'm giving it a sequel yes I still th- there there were some touches in this were, that were a bit over the top but this was such a satisfying movie. Uh, I I am I am usually ready to abandon a horror franchise by the middle of the second installment but this <laughs> I, I want to I want to see more of this especially if Anthony Perkins is directing. I know he's not going to but if he if he did oh boy I would be I would be first in line at the theater.
0: And Alex
1: and yeah, the um, sequel, yes, it's held up uh, wonderfully, if anything, it's gotten a little bit better over the years for me. And um, this is the right direction to take it in. We had, you know, we had a logical succession in the second film, um, you know, a development of the of the characters and everything. And then I think Psycho Three is very comfortable with the idea of being somewhat of a genre film, but also having these uh, very expressive uh, creative flourishes. And, as a director, Anthony Perkins is uh, very much suited for the job and uh, very much invested in the material. So instead of trying to like, counter the whole typecasting, he leans into it, and I think it works uh, I think it works wonderfully. Um so yeah, definite sequel yes on Psycho three.
0: So uh, next time around, we'll be talking about Bates Motel, a kind of backdoor TV pilot that um, there's a very funny clip of Anthony Perkins on YouTube saying that he watched it with great excitement with the biggest bag of popcorn he could bring home because he wanted to see how bad it was and he seemed delighted it was terrible oh yeah so we'll, but we'll find that out um, next week i've never seen also, that also
1: there's uh, secret psycho 4
0: yeah and that'll be the following week we talk so it's going to be base motel psycho Four: the beginning this oh. showtime i think and uh the remake of psycho which is playing on peacock for free Ooh. Um, so, I mean, that's so listeners look forward to that, but it is time to pitch a sequel. and I, I think of psycho three at the end when the the police uh, taken it back to the institution, maybe just do like a a prison picture, basically, of Norman in the institution. They did do a novel uh, about that that the block state approved um that had such ludicrous plot twist as like, Norman having a twin brother who's not really a twin brother and they're trying to psych him out uh, visiting mm-hmm. him but but yeah i I don't know if I'd use the plot from that spinoff book, but just Norman trying to uh be nice and try to make a run for it, and I think you would end with um hard cut to black, and you'd hear a gunshot, and you'd hear mother's voice saying, "We got him." That's kind of a teaser for whatever the next one would be. It would be called Psycho and Pri- Prison Psycho. That's what I'd call it.
2: So, so my sequel, I, I like the idea of it being set in an institution. So, you know, Norman has been uh, put away for life. and But the difference is, is I'm, I'm going to stick with this hopeful ending. It turns out the personality of Mother has never expressed itself uh, after after Norman was put into the facility, like Norman is like a model inmate. He is happy and cheerful all the time. He's like best friends with all the orderlies and guards there because he's just so cheerful and helpful. However, I want to heighten this even further because it turns out every other inmate in this facility is essentially a slasher villain. There's a there's a Voorhees type. Uh, there is oh, oh yeah yeah there's a Hannibal Lecter type who gets all these crazy speeches, uh, I'll, uh, although we will make him a coprophage rather than an outright cannibal. Uh, there's a Charles Manson type, but they're all parodies of different, either slasher movie killers or real, or, or like, like real world, uh, serial killers. Uh, and finally the, the and it's mostly the sort of slice of life stuff and, and setups. Uh, and it all builds to the point where a, one of the, one of the more sort of smart killers, uh, Sets off a series of events that gets everybody released and it just turns into a whole massacre with all the killers killing all the orderlies, killing all the security, kill, killing the doctors, killing reporters who were there to do a special story because there's going to be a story about Norman Bates as like a model prisoner and all that this, this stuff. And finally, they realize the only way we can get out of here, the only thing we can kill a killer is another killer. We have to set mama loose. And so in the end, Norman basically becomes a superhero. There's a whole suiting up montage where he throws on the wig and the house coat and he gets a knife and he just like a whirlwind of blades. He cuts, he cuts a path through the carnage in this mental hospital, allowing everyone to escape. Um, and and everyone's you know and everyone's so happy like wow well, Nor- norman you you did it you saved everybody but then they turn around and there's just an empty mother suit lying on the floor norman has slipped away while everyone is celebrating and no one knows where he went and we're going to call this a psycho for homecoming that being said, I would love to include a a after credit sequence where it is just Norman sitting in the cafeteria reading a book, surrounded by mangled corpses. like, turns yeah. out when he disappeared, he didn't run free. He just he hasn't been released yet, so he just puts himself back into the same facility.
0: <laughs> Pretty neat, uh, Alex.
2: So um, right after
1: the third one, after being driven off. Um, By the sheriff and uh, with a decapitated hand, um, he hears a disembodied voice go like, give me back my hand. And it's um, Emma Spool riding next to him in the car. And then, you know, what happens is that she tears him out and it turns out this is some weird fantasy sequence. And um, he's in this like ghostly custody court of his actual mother and Emma Spool. And it's a very, you know, litigious ghost court custody case as like a grown (laughs) Norman Bates is being torn between these two women who, uh, you know, declare that they, uh, you know, are the legal guardian of Norman. And then um, through a very long uh, litigious, uh, you know, uh, tit-a-tat with the ghost court and ghost custody, um, who breaks in none other but Leatherface, another uh, compatriot of the Ed Guide-inspired horror franchises. And he just hacks through uh, both mothers and, you know, mumbles something like, you're free! And then he, he Norman runs out, and then he suddenly wakes up, and it turns out he was been in a coma because um, the sheriff wailed on him with a phone book after being in custody because he was so mad that he made him eat uh, blood ice. So it's a Jacob's Ladder situation. It's a Jacob's Ladder situation. Um, it'll be called... Uh, It'd be called Psycho 4 Ghost Court.
0: Hmm. I like it. Pretty high so, concept. <laughs> what would the tagline be on the poster?
1: Oh, it would be called uh, Court is Now in Session.
0: I can, I can see it, yeah. Did you know one of the rejected scripts for Freddy vs. Jason was a courtroom drama? Really? Yep. Huh. That's They're a trope that could be... Jason on trial. More. In hell? No. Huh.
1: It would be cool if they could resurrect the Jury of the Damned from the fourth season, fifth season of The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want Lizzie Barnes, John doing.
2: Dillinger.
0: Philadelphia
1: Flyers. <laughs> that's, the one, that's the most terrifying one.
0: All right, fun stuff. I'm wondering... Um... So what I was watching, let me look this up here.
2: Hey, remember when we used to have that sound fight? What, 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 what you're watching? (laughs) did.
0: did Those lasted what, two
2: episodes?
0: (laughs) I think so, just because I didn't want to put them in. It was extra work. I totally
2: understand.
0: (laughs) There is a, I watched a very good documentary on HBO called Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults. I don't think oh. I've talked about this before. Has anyone seen this one?
1: I, I want to see it, because I love cult stuff.
0: Yeah, so this is about... This is not about the, the group that drank the Kool-Aid and died, but this was about a group that did a similar kind of mass suicide thing at the end. And they believed in, um, basically, in aliens, but that they would ascend to higher life forms if they all changed their names and had basically were part of this cult. And all talk the same and dressed in these identical robes. Um, it's a, like these documentaries tend to be nowadays. It's more, as, more of a documentary series. And it goes into good detail. And there's a lot of good uh, footage, including talking to people that got out of the cult right before the mass suicide part. Um, the, the biggest, are you familiar with this cult, Thrasher?
2: Yes, yes, I am. Yeah. I, I, I remember when it, when it was national news, this, this particular cult
0: yeah
1: no me too. when the story broke, it was huge. It was really wild stuff.
0: what's even wilder, and uh, I almost wish they would have dug into this, but they just had to use legacy footage is um one of the people in the group was the brother of Michelle Nichols, the original Uhura in Star Trek. Uh-huh. and they had like a quick vintage interview with her where she just basically says no comment, but she's like, you know my my brother is a very smart man but I don't know anything about the cult emote, you know, but I mean, I just can't imagine how hard that would be to have a sibling in the cult and have people get away. And it didn't seem to be like turn into a, a creepy rapey thing. Like a lot of these cults tend to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were, they were classified as like a alien cult that they were going to get the, mm-hmm. like the Haley Bob comet and be a bit of a do.
0: And um, yeah, I think it's if you have HBO and max and stuff, it's worth, Watching, it's it's sad, but I found it easier to take than the uh, the the several part Nexium series, which gets very very dark very quick. Uh, yeah, Alex, that's uh, been...
1: oh go on. Oh yeah, the the Nexium thing. I caught snippets of it, and it was uh, quite upsetting and disturbing. Um, but uh, but yeah, there was um, the I don't want to name drop names. Someone I used to know actually ended up being a part of that. And I, 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 I completely had no idea until Jeez. someone hit me up on Facebook and they were like, hey, you know, so-and-so. I was like, who? I was like, holy shit. I had no idea. Um, but anyhow, uh, I recently watched a movie I've been waiting for uh, for a while. And it's um, Rodney Asher's uh, latest film, A Glitch in the Matrix.
0: I've seen the trailer. That looks I've, – I've heard it's good and I've heard it's not cheesy because I thought from the trailer it would be kind of goofy. Uh, why it's, don't you explain what, the premise?
1: it's it's fascinating because it, it explain it explores all the various uh theories and concepts of simulation theory that you know we're not living in the real world we're living in a you know simulation you know, maybe ma- a, pet,
2: a pedant we really shouldn't call it simulation theory we should call it the simulation hypothesis
1: right so <laughs> it does make a little bit more sense um but yeah no it's a it's a fascinating documentary and it's very much immersive um, like instead of talking heads you have like very these very like um unique looking uh, 3d uh, animated avatars speaking um and it's like a it's a very immersive documentary uh there's a lot of like uh computer digital animation that like kind of uh, uh recreates uh some of the stories and testimonials offered by some of the commentators um and then also has some really great vintage footage of Philip K. Dick, who was, I guess, one of the not the first, but one of the earlier ones to kind of really pose that he believed in what we would consider to be the simulation hypothesis. And, um, and it even gets into you know Plato's Republic and um, you know the uh, writings of uh, Descartes. And um, it's a it's a wild flick, and it's it, it's not afraid to actually nudge into the, some of the darker stuff, like the Joshua Cook case in 2003. I want to say. That uh, that kid who blew away his parents um, because he really did think he was in the Matrix. Um, so I it plays.
0: Remember placed... that one? Weird.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really really dark. Um, mm-hmm. But it's uh, very much investigative in a curious like kind of essay film way, a la like Room Two Three Seven or uh, The Ask from Hell. And I find that like what's interesting is that the old adage of horror kind of used to be like a fear of the unknown. And then I think what like Rodney does is that it flips it and kind of goes, let's know as much as we can, let's investigate as much as we can. And when we do that, and we have all these different contrasting theories, it actually, almost becomes a little more scary than a fear of the unknown, you know? Because um, there's something really creepy about Room 237 as well as *The Hell and uh, the Nightmare*, the other *Sleep Paralysis* documentary. And even though this is much rooted in science fiction and philosophy, it actually there's still a lot of very creepy. Um, un- there's much of a creepy undercurrent to it. So uh, I would say approach it with an open mind and it's a, it's a really wild flick.
0: Nice. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching?
2: Uh, I'm as far from that as possible. Uh, (laughs) I saw the new direct to Netflix, Adam Sandler, happy Madison comedy, the wrong Missy. Ah, this, this, I will, I I will say that this is an uneven movie with an amazing cast. I'm, I the, the, what brought what brought me into this is that I'm a very big fan of Lauren Lapkus. She's a comedian, she's an improviser, she's on some of my favorite podcasts. She she she's truly is a, is amazing. So the idea of her in kind of a, a a twisted romantic comedy is great. This movie this movie is not great. This this movie is all is always just like a step away from being really really good, but it never never quite makes it there.
1: But is um, this is like one of those movies that like uh, like I remember the uh, Ridiculous Six, like no matter what I watched, Netflix was like playing next the Ridiculous Six. Is this a uh, playing next movie?
2: Yeah, it, it is, it is <laughs> often suggested if you watch if you watch a comedy. Uh, but the, the whole the whole premise of the movie is that David Spade plays this. He, he plays some sort of executive at some sort of company. Uh, I, I was actually charmed by how vague they kept the nature of the business that, that he does. Maybe Maybe it does Wall Street stuff. Maybe they develop products. Maybe they do importing and exporting. We just flat out don't know. Uh, but you know, the short of it is that, you know, he's at, he, he, he was going to get married, but the woman he was engaged to had an affair. So now, so that kind of really left him kind of emotionally scarred. So now he's trying to get back in the dating world and it opens with him having a disastrous blind date with Lauren Lapkis, who's just this almost psychotically bizarre woman, uh, named, named Missy. Uh, and it's a disastrous date. He nearly kills himself okay that's one thing this movie does great is the physical comedy he escapes the date by crawling out of a bathroom window but that bathroom window is on the second floor of a building and so he has this horrible fall into a dumpster and then into into the street um all the falls are amazing there's something happy madison has always been good at and that's making violence funny uh in live action which is shockingly hard to do um and then, then you know, a few months later, while going to a taking a flight to a business conference, he has a chance encounter with a woman named Melissa, and they immediately hit it off. Like uh, they, they they are each what the other is looking for in their life. So uh, before she gets on her plane, he gets her contact information, uh, and starts texting with her. But the catch is, he accidentally put both. Missy and Melissa in the phone as Missy and doesn't realize he's been texting with the crazy Missy this whole time. Uh, So when he's going to go on a corporate retreat in Hawaii where people are gunning for this vice president's position, he invites Missy to come with them, inviting, you know, quote unquote, the wrong Missy. Uh, And so now he's trapped on a Hawaiian island with this, this crazy woman. And it's just bizarre comedy set piece after bizarre comedy set piece, and some of the material is really, really good, and some of the material is god awful. But it's good to see Rob Schneider doing honest work again. Ah, Rob Schneider's one of the highlights. He plays this. Uh, he he plays this uh, this guy who like he's like a he's like a skipper on a boat that does like shark watching tours, and he has like this. Clearly a shark bit off his hand, because he only has two fingers on his on his uh, right hand. And, like, he's always going off script, but in that really organic, funny way that only Rob Schneider can do. So, a- anything he says is comedy gold, but the movie around him never quite rises to that level. But then, after that, inexplicably, he keeps showing up in other scenes. Nice and the movie just goes, goes off and like the movie eventually almost becomes like fantasy at one point. Um, and it's just, it's just, it never quite, even when it has a laugh out loud moment and it does have a few, it never quite gets satisfying. Uh, they do in the third act, of course, inject some humanity into the characters and we find out sort of why they act the way they do, but they never quite do that for Missy. Um, the, uh, there's a running thing with Missy there. Whenever a crisis happens, Missy always says, "Oh, I can take care of this. I'm a certified blank." Uh, and we find out in the third act, she's not lying. She actually is certified to do all these things that she says she can do. But the reason she is is that her father died like when she was re- when when she was like just going into college. And so she just like buried herself in her studies and took all these extra classes. And that's why she knows how to do all these things, despite being a complete and total psychopath. Um, But, of course, because that's the way these movies work, she and David Spade fall in love. And it does end on... it, it, It ended on a joke that crystallized for me what the movie should be. Because it ends with David Spade going on another blind date. But it's another blind date with Missy. He's trying to get back in her good graces, but he fucks with her the same way she fucked with him in the first act, which only makes them both seem like absolute psychopaths. And then I, and, and, but then, you know, they are both charmed by it. And like they, they hug and kiss in the middle of this restaurant and music swells and the camera spirals around, but then it just cuts to a wide shot of the restaurant. And they're in the middle of it acting like they are in a romantic comedy. And everybody else in the restaurant is acting like a real person in a restaurant. And that was so goddamn funny. And then I realized what the movie should have been. The movie should have been a deconstruction of a romantic comedy where the two romantic leads instead of bringing out the best in each other bring out the worst in each other. <laughs> That's what it. And the rest of the world just has to react to it. Like you would to those kinds of people. But sadly it never does. It, it's just too unclear what it's, what its premise is supposed to be. And like... Imp, semi-improvisational bits, which I normally would be charmed by, just overstay their welcome. They're not gold. Like no, the, the advantage of doing a movie with heavy improv is you improv a few different things and then you cut around it so only the best stuff is in the movie. All of this looks like all of the improv stuff, except for Rob Schneider, seems like it was a warm up before the real filming was going to start. Uh, that
0: sounds yeah. That sounds
2: a little choppy.
0: And the name of that one again?
2: Uh the Wrong Missy.
0: Okay. They've just done so many of those, it's hard to...
2: And I'm sure there's more coming. Try. Hubie uh, Halloween was surprisingly good. Uh, and worth checking out Hubie Halloween. Okay.
0: I, I've heard that, and I mean he... Um, I'm sure he appreciates you know, kind of the more freedom he gets with Netflix, presumably, than he did with his deal at Sony. Because recall the... How long ago is that now? Maybe almost 10 years, the Sony hack? Is that right? Uh, I, think, I, mean, I
2: think that was five years, but... Okay.
0: But... Uh, a little bit ago but there was emails in there from the executives going like why do we keep on cranking out shitty adam sandler movies why
2: uh-huh. do we give happy madison so much money
0: right and it's like when that stuff that wasn't meant for It was a private email right it wasn't meant for them to see but when every site is releasing leaks and things as soon as uh sandler saw that he's like fuck this and just did a netflix deal which
1: yeah, that's fair i, out, I right? don't blame
0: them i mean i wouldn't want, want to say that about me either so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to do the sequel scene. And what did you find for us, Thrasher?
2: So I found this is scene is, uh, this is actually the climax of the film. Uh, this is when uh, Norman is uh, in the upstairs room with the corpse of Mrs. Spool and also with the reporter, Tracy Venable. Uh, and he kind of gets caught into an argument between, like... He's arguing with his mother and arguing with Tracy Venable. uh, And then, of course, it climaxes with him stabbing his mother's corpse.
0: I see. So it's actually three parts, even though it's two people.
2: Yes.
0: So who wants to be who?
2: I'd love to do Norma. Oh, and I got to say, we do get a scene in Psycho 3 where we, for the first time, truly get a good, good, good look at Norman in the full mother get up and he speaks with Norma's voice and the lip that sync cool. is so uncannily good it is chilling. Mm-hmm. That
1: was cool. I yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was a cool ass scene. I, I really like that. So I and, can do uh, I could do Tracy. I'll do whoever.
0: Um, could you do Norman this time?
1: Yeah, sorry. Uh, I think
0: uh, I
2: can do the uh, Anthony Perkins.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll be Tracy. Norman's line is towards the end it looks like.
2: But I'll I'll take care of the stage directions, too, if you
0: want. uh, I don't think there's any stage directions, but... There's one. uh, Ah, yes. uh, Something involving a knife. Okay.
2: What can be? Alrighty, so... It's lies. It's all lies, Norman. She's a lying whore.
0: Norman. Norman, where are you? She's a slut. Norman!
2: Don't let her talk about me like that.
0: Norman, please, Norman, please listen to me. Norman, Mrs. Bates, whoever you are, damn it, damn it, doesn't make any difference in that demented brain of yours.
2: Killer boy, killer, just like the others. Get her! Oh no, don't, no, please, Norman, no. Norman stabs his mother. Norman, can't you do anything right? How dare you treat your mother in such a way, Norman? So, I don't have the guts, huh? <laughs> Kids from 7 to 17 love the taste of Psycho Chino. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hoo-ah.
0: I find. Uh,
2: Psycho Tua? Yeah,
0: Psycho Tua. In an in a interview from the past few years, Al Pacino admitted he was doing shitty movies thinking he could save them with his acting. <laughs> And, and, like, and i think
2: like he's some sort of superhero who's gonna say right
0: or maybe and, i mean he's pretty hands-on with his uh with the movies he makes and stuff from what i understand but uh i i bet jack and jill is one of those um i
1: i always feel like al pacino's favorite movie would probably be something like searching for richard
0: hmm.
1: like i feel like that would be is like that the one it, he directed yeah where it's like you know the richard III the third thing like, i
0: feel like yeah.
1: that's such an actor's movie that would probably be his favorite project and it's, like, that perfect level of, like, lesser seen. Because right. it always seems like whenever you talk to someone about some about their favorite movie, like, like Coppola's, like, one of his favorite things was, like, Finian's Rainbow. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, weird. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, man, I, I just, you look at the filmography of Pacino and of De Niro, and I I respect Pacino more, I think, just from... He doesn't do as many movies as de niro but he seems to pick things that are sort of interesting or he'll be interesting in them i mean even that kind of terrible movie sim one or simone did you see that yeah where yeah i remember that (laughs) yeah where i think the concept's okay but just the effects weren't quite up to the task but Pacino seemed to be having fun doing slapstick stuff hiding a blow-up doll in his car or whatever like it was he uh he likes to do a lot of things and then yeah. there was
1: that, um, that god-awful thing from, I forget, it was like 2010, uh, Righteous Kill, with, with De Niro and Pacino. Oh, that was
0: older than that, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Not I remember good. It
1: was like, the Irishman was like, you know, at long last, Pacino, De Niro in the same movie. I'm like, oh, this isn't the first time. We got heat, obviously. And then, don't we forget, Righteous Kill, which I, I just, I remember them being in, like, sweatsuits, like, panting a lot. That's like all I really remember is I'm just being like out of breath and
2: sweat so he's like, oh, oh, we're old, Thrasher. you know. uh,
0: Did you see any of those Thresher?
2: You know, I don't think I did. No. Do you have
0: any? What's your opinion on Pacino versus De Niro?
2: It's, I, I guess De, De De Niro De Niro is the the funnier one to do to to impersonate. With with Pacino, every time I think of Pacino, I only think of uh, Hank Azaria talking about how he got the job on The Simpsons, doing the Mo voice, because at the time, when he was cast, he was starring in a play, where he played a bartender who who was and he was modeling his performance after uh, after uh, uh De Niro, and and he was shown it doing a De Niro voice, but he brought it up here and it became Mo yeah and like that, um for some reason yeah that's I, what here, what i think of him is what i think of the simpsons i guess
1: yeah because if you watch like early early simpsons episodes like the like the mo voice is a little more lower like uh you know like Hal and like dark day afternoon sorry Homer.
0: You know. right and and homer specifically in season one is more of a direct ultra math down personation
2: come here He's boy like, what's going on yeah. boy Let's frosty, get some frosty, yeah. frosty chocolate milkshakes. Yeah, frosty chocolate milkshakes. And then around season two, it just kind of clicks and it becomes the voice we still hear today. Yeah. Although there, I, is, I, there I, is a Homer 2.5 yeah. voice though that shows up around uh season eleven.
0: I'm that's going on for two more seasons, isn't it? I kind of wish they'd stopped the Simpsons. I well, love The Simpsons, but I don't
2: know. I, I'm kind of delighted every time it gets renewed, only because there's a part there's a part of me like there's a part of me that whenever it gets renewed just thinks oh this is going to burn up all those people who want it canceled. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I guess I guess I would rather live in a world with new Simps- with new simpsons than no new simpsons even though I don't keep up with the show as much as I used to. There's yeah. just some there's just something delightful about these scribblings from an underground portland cartoonist becoming television's greatest institution that I just it del- delights me to no end.
1: And they're still doing newer stuff like they recently introduced like a Bob Fosse character, which I fucking, I think is great. Like he's always like twirling the hat and he's got the goatee and he takes speed. You know what I mean? Like it's totally Bob Mm. Fosse. And I think that was a pretty good innovation. I love characters that come in with their own bits. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Right. Um, Well, that's, that's all pretty cool. So next time uh, on Supercast cast two and friends, we'll be talking about the backdoor TV pilot Bates motel. Starring Bud Court, Moses Gunn, and a uh, Jason Bateman. Nice. Or um, I'm Matt. You can catch me on Twitter at m a t w b t. Leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. If you write one up, we will um, greatly appreciate it, and even read it on the air,
2: um, possibly in silly character voices.
0: Oh, what? I say that's a definite and the character voices so um also you can buy my books just go to the website matwbt.com alex
1: um you can find me on the twitter at crab nebula 1914 um also have a pretty cool uh youtube channel called the trailer project although we seem to be veering away from trailer commentaries and more into weird high concept shit but it's a lot of fun check it out if you can and uh, yeah, leave us a review. Drop a movie and maybe we'll cover a trailer commentary on the YouTube channel as a shout-out.
2: Have you done a trailer commentary for the original Psycho trailer yet?
1: Have not, actually.
2: That's such um, a good trailer.
1: It's a great trailer. Maybe that'll be our next one. And of
2: course, the body. That was too gruesome to describe. Let's move on. I should see all the blood. Speaking
0: of Hitchcock trailers, um, there is a... Funny story John Landis told on a podcast where he had, um, I think at one point he was considering directing the, was it 5,000-foot woman? What did that picture end up being called?
2: Under the Attack of the 50-foot Woman?
0: Something like that, yeah. yeah. And he, or no, excuse me, it was the Incredible Shrinking Woman, maybe? Oh, yes, yes. And and he was talking about... Would have been something in the Alex. Can you hear us?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a okay. Joel Schumacher film. Yeah,
0: that's right. Ended up being Joel Schumacher in the end, but Landis was pitching Hitchcock to make an appearance on uh, in the, in the trailer for that, where like you'd open a drawer and there'd be Hitchcock in the drawer, and he'd say something about this film. <laughs> and and Hitchcock's response is like, "Well, I think there should be a lot of there should be a lot of poop in the drawer." Because what she else she'd be doing locked in the drawer. And Landis didn't realize he was being fucked with, so he was being super polite to Hitchcock for about ten minutes until Hitchcock couldn't hold back the laughter.
2: <laughs> and sp- speaking of poop, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet fair
0: And where can people buy your books?
2: Uh, rpg.com is the most immediate source. Turns out there's some stuff I've worked on on Amazon, too. Uh, and and the best and you know if you if you buy the stuff that has been published through Skirmisher publishing llc i get better royalties on that so if you if you want to be really nice uh you you, you shop you shop for the skirmisher stuff on either amazon or uh, drive through
0: you should get a website Thrasher.
2: actually i really should i'm actually in the process i'm in the process of setting something up so we'll uh we'll talk about that off mic maybe
0: yeah um and uh can't even think straight. Okay, so for sequel cast 2 and friends, this is Matt.
2: This is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Saying, I guess we all go a little mad sometimes.